You're listening to Dirty Feet, a podcast from No More Radio. Vous écoutez le podcast Dirty Feet sur les ondes de No More Radio. Hosted by, animé par, Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon, et Stéphanie Morin-Robert. Stay tuned. We're going to move you. Continuing on with our coverage of the CAF tour, we're here in Edmonton for the 33rd Edmonton International Fringe Festival. We're going to be speaking with a bunch of artists today, some who are presenting dance works as part of the festival and some who have more physical theater uh, pieces. There's even a one yoga-inspired work that we're going to be talking about. Uh, in addition, we're going to actually have Linnea Giviazda, our uh, castmate for, for Body and Light. She's going to come in and try her hand at uh, co-hosting some of these interviews with us today. Uh, so we're going to start our episode with uh, the artistic director of Toy Guns Theatre. Uh, this is Jake Hasty. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now I'm going to do my best to pronounce uh, the, the names of your shows. You have two shows in the festival this year. There's propylene glycol, malodextrin, ret retinol pal palmitate, and other words I don't understand like love. Close. Close. <laughs> <laughs> you want to show us how it's done? Uh, I could. It's uh, propylene glycol, maltodextrin, retinol palmitate, and other words I don't understand like love. And this one I think I got. This is uh, red wine, French toast, and the best sex you've ever had. Nailed it. Perfect. So these two long title shows uh, you're, you're putting up for the, the Edmonton Fringe Festival. Um, and this is year one for Toy Gun Presents? We celebrated our first year on uh, June 21st. And uh, yeah, so it's just been a little more, little more than one year. So I was already impressed to know that in a year you've done these two works. But uh, in addition, you've actually got a third under your belt as well. Yeah, we, we've had a really amazing uh, season for an inaugural launch. Uh, we did a show called Bright Lights, Cold Water, uh, and it was an outdoor show in a park. And you were describing earlier how there was some audience participation in that work that you were doing outdoors. Yeah, Bright Lights was performed at uh, dusk in an open park space, and we actually had water guns and flashlights for sale. And so the, it was a free show, but the audience could purchase these, and then as the sun set, they would light the show with their flashlights, and there was a rain sound effect in the last movement where they shot the performers while they danced. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and it, it, it kind of demonstrates already that that example of like your your use of props and your use of humor in the work i i saw the 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 title that i butchered earlier in other <laughs> words i don't understand like love uh which is i think intentionally difficult to say <laughs> yeah well it, i mean for our purposes we i refer to the piece as pillow ballet but uh somehow that just didn't sit right with me so we we just went to the drawing board and my executive director laughed when i said this and and we said well who's going to tell us we can't well speaking with other artists around the festival about this show um it is it, people don't know what it's called but at the same time they know what show you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's been a really fun aspect of the whole whole thing of selling this show. But we've we've had a lot of fun. We actually had a pretty major pillow fight uh, yesterday until we got shut down. You know, safety ordinances and such. But this was included in the show, or th no? This was this was just uh, one of our clever marketing ploys. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. Gorilla tactics there. <laughs> So, so let's start uh, by talking about this piece, because this is the one that I've seen. Now, you, you have a lot of theatrics. Your, your cast is obviously very talented, both as movers and as, uh, you know, acting. Yeah. Um, 
Well, our I'm this this cast of eleven uh, dancer actors, I guess I will call them, um, comes from. I mean, they're based in Edmonton and from Edmonton predominantly, but they actually are training all over Canada. So we have a smaller company that we keep in the city of of about four to six dancers that we work with consistently. And then this summer we have guest artists coming from Toronto Dance Theater, uh, SFU Dance Program, the National Theater School, Sheridan College. Uh, yeah, so it's just been it's been a really great group of people to work with. All right, so these eleven people come on stage uh, at various times and and do a variety of things between uh, interacting with the audience. Kind of, there's there's somebody um, telling. Well, actually, at, at several points, there's personal stories being told to individual audience members. There's, uh, like I said before, lots of crazy prop work. Uh, there's these incredible little bursts of dance scenes where you get these high kicks and these beautiful jumps and, and all these spins and whatnot. Uh, how do you categorize your work? It's not in the dance category of the festival for some reason. How do you see the work? Well, we... I mean, it's our company is called Toy Guns Dance Theater, and I actually spent probably about five months over the last two years, kind of stalking the Pina Bausch Dance Company mm. around Europe and and seeing some of their works. I'm talking to the artistic director, the one of the archivists, uh, Daphne, is a friend of mine, and and just kind of talking through some of the work that I wanted to do. I have a background. I studied at the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, then studied theater, then studied opera for three years. And so it's it's kind of a mixed bag. And, and I think, I mean, our work is definitely nothing like Pina's, but at the same time, it, it borrows what dance theater does, which is to say, communicate. And it doesn't, maybe form doesn't matter as much as we think sometimes. Maybe it's what you have to say that really matters and, and finding the way that you want to say it. So that's... Yeah, I I honestly don't know. We talk about the opening number, which uh, in the piece, which we call butt scratcher, because that's the opening move of the number, and no one has been able to pinpoint it as far as what genre of dance it might live in. And I mean, we have wonderful performers who have had you know fourteen year performing careers, and they just go, well, it's not, it's not anything I've done before. Mm. <laughs> so. Uh, it's incredible too how much play there is in the work. There is there is humor, and there's also just like a lightness and and and. I think that makes the communication a lot gentler in a way. I don't know. Can you, can you tell me what is important to you about that entertainment factor of the work? Hmm. Well, I don't like when people tell me depressing stories and that's not to say that I don't want them to communicate with me. I just don't feel that we always need to put, a tone on what we're saying. It's, it's, it's kind of like when someone's sick and, and they have a look to them and you go, well, I know that you don't feel well. You know, if you just have a cold, say, I have a cold, I'm going to go home and I'm going to get better and I'm going to feel better. It's not always necessary to, to, yeah, to just put more on. I think that that's what we try to do is, is be as honest as we can without, without always going farther. It's there. I'm, I, I mean, most of, most of the jokes are horribly depressing stories from my life, which the cast knows, but I don't think the audience needs to know that. <laughs> there's something else. There's such, a, there's such an elegant sex appeal in the work, too. Let's be honest. We've got, we've got women in silk dresses, uh, you know, short underwear. Uh, we've got handsome guys with their shirts off. Um, does this fall in the same category for you of keeping things lighter, fun, or? Well, 
I mean, I did I did ballet for years, and and it was always weird to me that we, like, almost remove sexuality from the body continually, and we would perform, you know, almost naked many, many times. I did many tours where I had to, you know, go fake tanning, so I wasn't that pasty guy in the corner. But, um, yeah, there was, there was something to me about putting people in clothes and, and what it means to take your clothes off. And I think a lot of the work... Um, is meant to be a broad range of life experiences and every day, you know, we take off our clothes and we put them on and I think it's part of the passing of time. It's part of who we are. And yeah, yeah. I don't know if I got anything more to offer. <laughs> That's legit. I mean, they're all young, right? And they're young and they're fit. <laughs> well, they look young. <laughs> <laughs> well, they look good. Let's they look that. good. Yeah, no, I mean, true. our... Our range this summer for performers was anywhere from uh, 19 to 52 years old, actually. So we, yeah, we we kind of aim to be a little bit more diverse, just because I, th- I think it's harder for an audience sometimes. I mean, I'm, I mean, I love young dancers, but sometimes the stories of an 18-year-old aren't that interesting to me at 32. Mm-hmm. And I only imagine that sitting in an audience at you know 50 years old. That it's it's tough to yeah it's it's tough to reach it's tough to reach into that at least with the kind of work we do I mean great movement is great movement so I think there's certain types of art that transcend that I don't know if mine does <laughs> well I mean there's so much personality in in the work and I, that brought by the individuals involved like I can imagine it would be boring to have more cookie cutter performers yeah well that and that's been the adventure of 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 trying to rehearse this type of work. Um, once we'd actually staged the entire piece, um, the last week, we not only did run-throughs, but I ended up doing almost like private sessions with every performer to go through every unique moment that they bring mm. in the piece because it's, I mean, even allowing someone to be themselves doesn't mean that you don't need rehearsal and it doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be done at a high level. So it was, it was a really interesting process to go, okay, well, we're as close to performance as we're going to get, but we're not actually going to spend all of our time together in the studio. We're going we're gonna to spend it in, in smaller groups and really work on things in a more deep way. So, Backing up to when you were actually creating the material, uh, how much input do the performers have in that? What is the process that you go through? Oh, wow. Uh, well, actually, all three works have been really different this summer. Um, this, this pillow piece is, is probably the most um, dictatorish I've been as far as coming in with a lot of material that I'd already developed myself, a lot of really clear ideas of what the scenes were, and then letting those scenes almost, almost like an outliner script would um, interact with the performers the same way I would, I would direct a play. Um, our other show, Red Wine, had a lot more like working with the dancers and, and, and kind of performer input and performer created movement sections. But we actually built this show originally in two weeks to perform at a festival. And, and then we just got to grow from there. But that was in early July that we did that. So, yeah. I'd love to ask you like a broader question about the Edmonton dance scene, just as we're traveling and uh, we're curious about, about what's going on in other places. So how about Edmonton, Alberta? What's up in the dance industry here? Well, I'm, I'm very much a newbie. I, I've, I mean, I'm from here, but I don't, I don't think uh, up until this, up until the launching of Toy Guns, I was always blending my time between the theater community as well as teaching. And... 
Um, and I've been incredibly well supported by some of the more developed companies here. So we, we have a couple of really wonderful groups. One is the Good Women Dance Company that um, does a lot of work in progress, um, support for other artists. And they actually launched our company by allowing us to take part in a, in a work in progress series last September. Um, and Mile Zero has been a huge supporter of us. And, and they're another fantastic group. I, I think there's some really interesting contemporary dance stuff. But we have a real challenge with not having a post-secondary um, dance program in the city fair enough uh now you mentioned before we even uh, started recording the the future of these three works and the future of toy gun is that something that you feel comfortable talking about oh absolutely uh anyone who knows me takes most of what i say with a grain of salt so <laughs> we'll just dive right in um we're Actually, we're in kind of the next two months is, is planning out for our next summer season. And we're in negotiations to do an Alberta tour as well as we're applying for festivals and, and heading east, um, probably as far as Guelph, hopefully, if things work out. Um, and then, yeah, next summer, we're probably going to Europe. So that's that's our kind of really exciting push right now. So, yeah. Is this is this something that you would you would take your site specific work on the road as well? Well, we've, I mean, we've, we've been looking at a lot of different aspects and, and I think a lot of it comes down to practicality and also what, what we can get as far as support from, from sponsors. Um, and, and we've been really fortunate so far. I mean, there's been so many great people that have come through for us. Uh, yeah, I probably can't say of those negotiations because they're in the <laughs> early stages. But yeah, if, ever, if everything works out, there's some pretty major productions that we'd like to take. And, and I think the people that we have right now are so, are so interesting and fantastic that I'd love mm. for them to, to be seen because I think they, they deserve it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think this work deserves to be seen. It's it's a, an incredible piece, and they are incredible performers. And I'm very excited for you guys. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Perhaps uh, just for the audience that's listening specifically about the Edmonton Fringe, can you uh, give a quick quick plug for both your shows that are uh, part of the festival? Okay. Well, uh, in truth, I have four shows in the festival. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> but these these two are the ones that I've done with my company or, or me and Rochelle Thorson's company Toy Guns Dance Theater uh, yeah words I don't understand like love is a piece involving 300 pillows uh, we also have a featured opera singer and a professional clown who is the storyteller who appears throughout the show um, as well as our 11 movement based performers uh, the other show that I have is Red Wine, French Toast, and the Best Sex You've Ever Had. And it's actually based on a Salvador Dali painting called Invisible Figures. Uh, it features six movement-based performers. The only spoken words come from a vaguely disguised uh, Salvador Dali mask, basically a mustache that the performers hold up and then speak to the audience through the voice of Salvador Dali. And yeah, it's uh, it's. It's kind of a fun adventure. There's a lot of kind of overlapping scene work where audiences get to choose what characters they invest in within the six dancers that perform. So, And then my other two shows are Famished, the zombie musical, which I uh, just choreographed <laughs> and assisted with, and a wonderful one-woman show called Ask Aggie that uh, has been having a fantastic audience response. And it's, yeah, it's a really fun little piece. So I just choreographed that one as well. Those were both directed and written by many of their marvelous people. Is Ask Aggie also a musical or is it a play? It's, well, it's a one-woman show that okay. crosses between, uh, there's five musical numbers. There's uh, basically a third of it is improvised, a third of it is scripted, and then a third of it is, is music and dance numbers that uh, the one-woman performs as Aggie, an aging sex advice. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
columnist, I guess is the word. I don't know. My goodness, you do keep busy. Well, I recently quit my job, so <laughs> it's kind of anything to pay the rent right now, which is a complete lie. All these people are my close friends that I'm working with, but the transition from predominantly making money through teaching dance and creating as much work as I could on the side to, to going full tilt into choreography is, is yeah, scary at times. Well, all the best with that journey. That's very exciting, as oh. well as scary, I'm sure. Uh, so thank you so much. We've been speaking with Jake Hasty from uh, Toy Guns Dance Theater. Thank you. And you have a track for us to play at the end of the interview. Uh, yeah, this is the finale from Words I Don't Understand Like Love. Uh, it's the Ramones covering Tom Waits. Super. Thank you. When I'm lying in my bed at night, I don't want to go. Nothing ever seems to turn out right, and I don't want to go. back on site at the 33rd Edmonton Fringe Festival. Our next pair of guests are working on the show The Wild, which is another dance show as part of the festival. Uh, we're speaking with one of the choreographers of two and uh, one of the performers in the work. So we have uh, Tara Gaucher, who is a Edmonton local uh, uh, who studied dance in Toronto at the Toronto Dance Theatre. Uh, TDT with uh, Christine Birch, who is our other guest here today, who is one of the performers in in the work. Now there are three short short works in this show, all done by a pair of Edmonton choreographers, Tara here and Krista, your your co your 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 buddy there. Yes, partner in crime. Partner in crime. Absolutely, okay. super. So, uh, can you set it up for us, just in terms of of who did what on this show and uh, and how the works are composed 
Absolutely. So there are three pieces in the show, two duets and one solo. I created the first duet that Christine and I perform, and I also created the solo that she performs at the end of the show. And the piece in the middle is a very Canadiana-inspired, many layers of plaid and wool socks and long johns and mosquitoes and lumber and lumberjacks and log waltzing beer. I think I might have missed the beer part. Uh, yeah, so that would be the dance that uh, Krista created for us. So three pieces, very different, um, but also still loosely tied to this idea of the wild. And do you consider this like contemporary dance showcase? Yes and no. Yes. Sure, yes. Uh, the last piece that Christine dances is very much in the world of, of contemporary dance. Uh, the movement vocabulary is largely improvised on a, a structure that we created together based on the idea of a type of metamorphosis. Um, so in terms of the aesthetic, I would say that the last piece definitely you would identify as a contemporary dance. But uh, the first two, maybe more on the, along the lines of physical theater, uh, definitely still relying on our skill and stamina and technical abilities. But maybe I would say that the story is a bit more important. So we're taking it in a narrative direction. Great. And you guys have uh, these Adidas outfits on right now. I imagine there's a lot of uh, athleticism in the work. Absolutely. The first piece, uh, I also do CrossFit. So dance and then I live in the world of fitness. So uh, it's an experiment in doing these things in real time. So we are absolutely wearing Olympic weightlifting unisuits, which from a costume standpoint are terrible. And I don't know why I chose them because (laughs) we just feel like goofballs. Um, But I think they really fit with this idea of taking things to the next level. We are competitive. We we do competitive yoga. We have some competitive deep breathing. We have, uh, you know, taken everything to the next level of, of... yeah, and why? Because at the end, I think we just really want nachos and, and, and McDonald's and all those delicious things you contemplate after a really physical physical workout. So in the show description, you talk a lot about um, your, your relationship to the wild and that being the inspiration. Did this come before you programmed the show or were the pieces, did the pieces inspire the general theme of the wild? Uh, well, I think we the main goal was us just to create a show together. We wanted to start a work and then take it somewhere else after. And we had both been uh, going through stuff about like being in the wilderness and like going crazy ourselves and stuff and a lot of things going on in our lives. And we just talked about this concept of what wild is. And we thought, hey, let's make a show about the wild and see what we can come off of, like choreography-wise, what we can riff off of. And we gave Krista the opportunity to, to like take a Canadian piece that she was doing a solo and how can we make that more like nature wild, whereas my solo is more about like uh, the physical transformation of wild, like an animal within. And then Tara's duet is more of like that mental toughness. So like, what is that wild in your mind that you need to tame? Now, Tara, as a choreographer, and Christine as a as a performer, uh, what is it about the the presenting work in the fringe here in Edmonton that is a- appealing to you? What, what what part of your career is this experience? This is an opportunity to take a maybe a bit more of a risk in the sense that knowing our audience comes from all walks of life. And that's something that's really exciting for me that um, I want to make stuff that's entertaining to my brother who works in Fort McMurray and I want to make things that are entertaining to uh, someone who has an appreciation for theater and who has appreciation for performance. So I think this is an op- a really great opportunity just to try something that uh, maybe pushes the boundaries a little bit of, of contemporary dance, but is still exploring what is a performance. If, for example, I lift uh, some weights at the beginning of the, of the first duet and I, I'm like actually lifting the heavy weights and my mom's like, why don't you just lift the lighter ones? I'm like, but that's not the point. You know, I want to do the real thing and explore what that could be in a performance as well. Um, yeah, and we're just excited to be able to share moving bodies with as many people as we can. 
Yeah, I think for me, um, just performing in another province, another city, I know how big Edmonton Fringe is. I produced and danced in a show, two shows in different fringes before, but to work with my friends that I think are amazing amazingly smart women very talented for us to actually create work that I'm passionate about I love a lot of projects that I do in Toronto too but to be able to help collaborate I'm not a choreographer but I really like collaboration so this was a great opportunity to push my comfort zone in that and to perform for a totally different audience that I'm not subjected to the normal you know stuff that's in Toronto and the people same people same people that come out to the theater like totally brand new audience lots of locals i think the vibe here is amazing and to be able to just show something a little bit different here is great for like my development and at the end of my emerging years as a dancer and how long ago did you guys come out of tdt uh we graduated in 2009 mm-hmm. yes okay. and i was a bit injured so i took a bit of time away from dance but it's like hard to when that's your life and your identity, maybe you guys understand as well. I've you know, danced since I was five, so I took a break to be a human and to travel and have a day job and whatnot. But these opportunities just kind of kept on drawing me back. So I presented work in the Toronto Fringe in 2011, um, had the opportunity to present a solo at a festival at Harbourfront Centre in Toronto uh, in 2012. And these things, as much as I... I thought that my life might go in a different direction. Uh, this is still a huge part of it. So um, just excited to have an audience. You know, it's, it's the Fringe is an opportunity excellent opportunity you build it they will come it's it's really magical that's so nice that you just kept getting drawn back (laughs) into the world that's beautiful uh i guess uh, my curiosity comes because i'm i'm wondering uh with all the theatrics and the prop work that sounds like your your piece is involved with uh does that come from your tdt training or is that something that you've 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 brought from elsewhere in your your parkour as a (laughs) artist i think for myself um this is informed by the the life experience that happened after school and I'm so thankful for that very specific technical training but I needed to live a bit and use my body in different ways to then be able to reflect on the skills that I had and that I did gain at that point in time so I think this show is very much informed by us maybe I'm still trying to be a little bit of a rebel maybe I should grow up you know but uh, that we we came from a, a very specific aesthetic and specific environment and it's fun now to be like hey you know what I'm gonna drink a beer on stage because I remember my teacher would have hated that no one can say anything now so for me I guess although it's been a few years out of school that I still have this sense of trying to get away with as many things as I can that I didn't think I would have been able to during school yeah I'm a jerk sorry <laughs> I think also, too, like, um, we did get the opportunity in school to do choreographic workshops and, like, um, coffee houses every year if we wanted to present, and Tara presented some work a a few times, and her work was always a little bit more out there, I think, than some other people, like, in a really great way, and I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to work with her, because I know that she has that in her, and yes, we did go to a very technical school, but they did foster some form of trying to get us to create and I think Tara had some seeds that were planted there that were really fantastic and different and uh, kind of changed my idea of like what dance can be so and I think now this show is like starting to take wind of like those little seeds plus her life experience too thanks buddy We've, we've been touching on this a little bit or maybe skirting the question of like uh, what are the differences between the Toronto scene and the, and the Edmonton scene here and I'm curious if you could flesh that out a bit for us who are very unfamiliar with, uh, with both. Our Edmonton scene is 
tiny but faithful. Uh, so there's a group of ladies here by the name of the Good Women Collective that are, um, they are the pillars of this dance community, I would say, and have done an amazing job of providing an opportunity for a company class to actually take place and for uh, opportunities to present works in progress and that they have developed their own season in partnership with uh, with Brian Webb and the Edmonton Arts Council. Uh, so when the Grammy McEwen program closed here in 2005, that was kind of uh, the end of an era, I guess you could say, of the dance community here, that many of the dancers that were training left and they went to Vancouver or Toronto or Montreal. And so it's been a little bit of time to rebuild that. And uh, all those ladies and myself, Krista, we all left for post-secondary education and now we've come back. So um, so it's new. It's tiny. It's this, it's, but it's, it's growing. And there definitely are some special things happening here. Um, maybe my aesthetic versus the, those ladies... I think I'm just a little bit of a black sheep, that's all. Um, but I, I really appreciate the, the risks that they're taking artistically and making dance and encouraging Edmonton audiences to see it. They, they have to, we have to grow this community. Like, the, there isn't just a built-in dance community that knows about these things that would show up. So, um, so there's, there's building their practice, there's building their work, and then there's also that huge part of building an audience. So it's very much in, in progress, but exciting to be a part of. Um, I guess with the Toronto dance community, most people are like super familiar. You know, it's one of the bigger hubs. Like Toronto, Montreal are usually the two biggest contemporary dance hubs. We grew up there. I actually am from Toronto, Toronto region, so I've been there forever. Um, it's a great community. There's been a lot of shifts that have been happening happening in the last little while. Uh, some of the more major companies have been losing some of their annual funding, which has made a shift. And there's also a great group of ladies called the Toronto Dance Community Lovin. And those guys have been making a huge shift in getting alternative techniques. So when I came out of school, they really, those are my friends, those are my people, and they've ex- um, exposed me to more like floor work, other stuff that's going on in Europe and like elsewhere and stuff that, you know, maybe was going on in Montreal, but not so much in Toronto, because Toronto's known as being like, you know, technicians and stuff like that. But things are definitely switching, especially on the emerging artist front. And I'm really happy to be a part of that. Um, It's a really, that part of the community is really strong, really loving. Everyone's very supportive about talking about work critically, pushing where we are in Toronto and trying to not be known as just like technicians as like this is what people assume the Toronto dance community is, but to really open it up and to create space for other artists from like, you know, the Good Woman have come out for stuff like that for like the Summer Lovin' and we're really about welcoming our doors to everyone and so they're trying to push the community more in a way like that and I'm really grateful to be a part of that. Yeah. I think we we, we got the right guests to ask that question too. That's great. <laughs> We've been speaking with Tara and Christine from the show The Wild uh, being presented at the Edmonton Fringe Festival and uh, you have a little something for us to listen to, yeah? Absolutely. We have some sound bites of the mixed bag, we'll say, the mixed bag of treats that our show is. Um, the aesthetics of the pieces and the worlds that they live in are all completely different. So uh, you're going to hear a little bit of motivational speaking, as that's what begins the first piece in the show. That's followed by some Olympic weightlifting with real weights that are heavy, just for the sake of me showing off, I guess, is really what it is. Um, the second piece, we have some voiceover of Canadian icons Bob and Doug McKenzie and those quintessential sounds of nature, as well as the log driver's waltz, which we're actually really really excited to dance to and uh the last piece that christine is performing is definitely in that uh we took a left to modern dance town so there's some electronic music in there that we really we really enjoy that uh, gets christine moving great thank you so much thank you guys that's great realizing our full potential as human beings this is a goal many of us share a goal most never achieve but you now have in your possession 
a wonderful guide which will help empower you toward control of your thinking, your attitude, your outlook. Party time, go. Good day and welcome to party time. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I now turn the recreation over to my brother, okay, Bob, thanks. who will give you a game to play. While listening to the album, this is a good thing to do. Go. Okay, take a six-pack of cans. So normally we drink bottles, eh? But for this game, you've got to use cans. So take a six of your favorites, right? It's, it's like Russian roulette. It's called the beer hunter. And like, okay, we're going to play it here. Okay, give it to me. Okay, Hoser's right. going to shake up one can. Here we go. All okay, right. now that's well shook up. All right, give me it. Back in the box. Okay, now... Now I'm not looking Don't where look. he put The next show we're going to be talking about is a difficult-to-define production. We can call it a play. We can call it a physical theater production. Uh, it's called Hospital. That's the title. And uh, it's one of the works, again, as part of the Edmonton Fringe Festival this year. Uh, it's a two-hander, and we have both of the, the performers with us today. It was actually, there was a third uh, person involved in the creation of the show who is not present. But we'll be speaking with Robin Toller and Sarah Ilyatovich Goldman. Very good. Thank you. Very good. This is, I've seen this show, and that's an important part of the show, is your last name, Sarah. Yeah, well, it comes from the true insanity of having a last name with, I used to count it, I don't know, 21 letters, something like that. Um, so when you have, like, comic gold like that, you have to capitalize on it. <laughs> you can't just ignore the giant last name in the room. You have to do something with it. So this seemed like a good platform. So we did. So you and Diana Rose actually created this work together. Yeah. Well, we started creating it. Robin has become a very crucial part of the creation process. But uh, Diana Rose, formerly Gronin Dyke, uh, and I created it together. We started playing about four years ago with it um, for many different reasons. A lot of it being a personal thing to push form. I'm an actor and a playwright by trade, and she's a dancer and a choreographer. We'd been good friends for years, and we were just interested in like 
pushing the boundaries of storytelling, um, pushing the boundaries of what we did. She wanted to do stuff with more narrative and more character. And I'm always interested in form and physical theater and dance, even though I don't really play in those areas a lot myself. And so that was that was why we were like, okay, we need to find something to work on together. And this is what came out of it. A lot of the time when you see uh, physical theater in a, the description of a, a show that's mostly uh, a theater show, it's usually included because it's humorous and in kind of mm-hmm. like the slapstick style. But that's not what's going on here. There's there's physical uh, movement. There's sections without words, uh, but it's it's not for necessarily humor. No. No, we... Uh yeah, the creation of the show was really strange and took a lot of years. And again, it started with us just playing sort of as artists wanting a studio space. We were both really um, not particularly satisfied with the work we were getting hired to do. Uh, we didn't find it creatively very satisfying. And so it started out as just a place for us to explore. Uh, the show is called Hospital. We've both had a lot of really strange medical experiences in our lives that as friends we shared with each other. So it seemed like an interesting diving off point for us. Um, and we just, it first started, we'd meet twice a week in a studio that we got for free and just play and just try different things and what about this and what about this um, and look at where dance and talking and text and storytelling met each other um, and it just kept developing we always wanted it to be uh, very like have a lot of crucial movement in it and a lot of text in it um, in surprising ways which does make the show harder to sell because when people say what genre is this it doesn't fit into any of those things um, but yeah it was really exciting and the first time we did anything in public with it was at Series 808 in Toronto which is a dance workshop thing so it actually started off completely within the dance community which is probably why there's less humor um, and that sort of uh, you know kind of physical theater in it yeah, and uh, so yeah, so it started in the dance community, and we did a 15-minute snippet of it, and we had no idea how people were going to respond, and people's response was really overwhelming and really touching, and so it let us know that there was something worth continuing to explore, and so that's that's what happened. We just kept kept pushing it. And I imagine there was a big change then when Diana's role is taken over by Robin. Not only are you different genders, but I'm imagining very different people. So, yeah, you want to talk about yeah. that? Yeah. Um, well, I joined them after they'd done the Series 808 performances and they wanted to get an outside eye. And I'd been doing some dramaturgy stuff with dance in the couple of years previous. So I was able to help them communicate a little better in the room and offer an outside eye as well. And then... Um, uh, we we went we went and did other things. Sarah and I took these trips to faraway places, and and the piece ended up not quite finished and hadn't didn't have a home anywhere. And the three of us ended up living in different parts of the world. When a festival in Chicago we had applied to said they had something drop out, and um, can we still do it? And Sarah said, Yeah, of course. And Diana said, No, I'm moving with my husband to BC, and I'm not gonna dance for a while. Uh, and we decided that I should fill in then. So uh, we taught me what Diana had so far, and then we changed it for me because, as you mentioned, we have different skills. I cannot dance the way she can, but I'm more comfortable with uh, with speaking and with character stuff. And we, we so we made these changes, and we finished the piece in a manic eight or nine days that we both managed to be in Toronto. And then... 
I left Toronto for good, did a play in Ottawa, did the final show, and basically that night went to the airport, showed up to Chicago when we did this piece, so it was always a little bit frantic. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of what exactly... You can never say, how would it be different? You never know. This is the way the piece went. But there's definitely some speaking bits and, uh, and some characters that I've brought to it. And it's definitely lent as a result towards being a play... There's a narrative to it. It was the, it was it was picked up by two theater minds much more. Um. Yeah, one of the big things that I would say that changed is like when Diana and I were originally doing it, it worked more like a dance piece sometimes. Well, where there are two people sort of doing their own separate thing, and they uh, you know they connect to each other, but they aren't necessarily working together, except in this case, one of the separate things was dance and one of them was speaking, and there was a lot more abstraction. Um, and when Robin came in, because of his narrative abilities, and his, it didn't make sense to pretend that we weren't working together as two actors uh, who also do physical movement and dance, it didn't make sense to ignore that. Uh, so we added in there's more story, there's more concreteness. It was more redefining where does dance and physical movement fit in now, um, as opposed to previously it had been a lot more like, well, where does text and speaking fit into this dance piece? Um, and we do still end with movement. Um, we, we have a, a, a loose structure to it that we found in the creation leading up to the Chicago show last year, which is that we begin in straightforward realism. We even added a scene at the beginning that ends up getting repeated so that we knew we could, we could begin with our feet firmly in realism. She's in a waiting room, a doctor comes in to see her, and that through the course of the piece, we lead towards the end, which is just a, a dance. Um, so that sort of... Um, marks the trajectory from one form into the other and of course it's mixed throughout um, but and I'd also say that we got another eight or nine days this year before doing it in this festival where we got to go over it and realize that from the last production of it we ended up with a narrative more or less uh, and we were able to go through each moment and kind of check that any given moment was in line with what it served for the narrative uh, and even after that, we still end, for the most part, with with a, a just a physical moment. Um, and now we do kind of bookend it with Sarah picking up the storytelling again at the end. But and Robin, your your part in the piece is is very physical. Often your character is is extremely subtle and is just present to to indicate or or amplify certain elements of the storyline. Um, so what has your relationship been to movement as an actor? Um, well, when I learned that I was going to take on this role, uh, I went, okay, I really need to know more about how to use my body because I really care about this piece and I've seen what Diana was doing and I just couldn't. I'd been doing more and more physical stuff and getting into dance myself, but around this time I got into something called gyrokinesis which is a silly name it was named by a Romanian man in the 70s but it's a wonderful movement technique it's like a yoga that's been made for and by dancers and that's been a big part of my life in the last year and a half as I start to learn how my body works I've always been a physical performer doing a lot of improv comedy from a young age and I've toured doing that in my life and I've done puppetry and I've always been a physical actor but, but this, this has been something new for me um, yeah. <laughs> On that note, you were mentioning uh, 
yesterday about about the difference that it's made from the first time you presented the work to this to this right. run of the work. Right. Well, we performed it in Chicago last year, as I said, and then um, this gyrokinesis thing has become a bigger part of my life. And uh, just picking it up on the first day, and particularly visiting the last dance piece, which is the most uh, demanding for me. Just to do that movement again with my new body, you know, I uh, felt really different. There was a kind of, um, you know, casualness almost that I could go through at a stability where instead of, you know, th- throwing my whole self to the side, I could throw a part of me or something. I think I'm going to lose words if I try to get too descriptive here, but it's felt really different and it's really satisfying. I feel like I'm capable of more a year on. Um, and for me, getting into dance is a funny thing because I think that I always wanted to be doing this kind of thing. I always wish that I had the kind of information available that would teach me how to use my body more properly, but I just never, never ended up in that. Uh, in a serious way, I've done the odd dance class and things like this, but uh, it it's, it means a lot to me to get to do this now. And I don't, I have a lot of insecurity around not being a real dancer or how far I'll be able to get because I'm just about thirty and I picked it all up when I was twenty seven, twenty eight or something. So that's all in there, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm doing the kind of work I want to do, and that's that's what I want to be doing. So. One of the big difference between last time and this time is his confidence because he was always able to do the movement brilliantly, but it was the feeling, you know, of being able to play like so much of this show is about how far are you willing to push yourself and play and play with the audience and play with the movement and play with all of these different elements. And um, I used to have to convince him to rehearse the last thing. He would be like, oh, well, we'll just and then we do the dance at the end. And I'm like, can we look at that? And, no, 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 we we'll just do it. And I'm like, OK, well, maybe we should do it now. No. And, and that has not been an issue. Actually, the first time we ran through it in Chicago, I thought he was going to not do it at the end. And I was like, oh, my God, Robin just is going into the dance and doing all of these things. And that's been so beautiful to watch, to watch the development of that happen. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I was telling Sarah that I g- got all fluttery when, when uh, Allison, after the show, said, Robin, I didn't know you were a mover. Do you want to do my dance podcast? And I was just like, Sarah, I count. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The audience is a, a very important part of this piece. You, you interact with the audience, um, and the house lights are on for for a good portion of, of, the, of the piece. Um, maybe if one of you could speak a bit about, about your decision to, to make the audience so, so prominent in the work. I'll try to start, and then I'll give it to Sarah, because Sarah's the one that has to do that. I get to hide in my wiggling. Um, it, uh, how did that start? Well, part of what we're doing is, is um, making the, their slight discomfort um, a bit like them being in a waiting room in a hospital. We actually had somebody say that to us having a drink last night, and we were like, "Correct, <laughs> success." Um, but I think I really better just let Sarah tell about this as she's drinking something. That's all I got. Um, okay. Well, there are many different reasons. One of the first things, as I said, when we started working on this originally, it was like, "What can we do to just push ourselves?" And I hate audience interaction, and I hate talking to the audience. I've it's like it's terrible it's terrible as an audience to be uh singled out 
and to and it's terrible as a performer to have to like you know I can perform and do all sorts of things all sorts of things have been demanded of me in my career um, but that's different than looking someone in the eye who's not your scene partner and being like hi I'm a person and you're a person and we're sort of in this moment together so we wanted to do something that was terrifying so that's where it started I'd seen for the first time I'd gone to Edinburgh to the festival there and had seen it done really really well and I as an audience had had a really different experience in that setting I'm really fascinated as a theater maker um, by the difference between theater and other mediums. And one of the big things is that it's live and we're all sharing it together. And I think that we try to ignore that a lot of the time um, and that there's this thing that's being created where like audiences feel it's okay to talk like to be on their phones and to do things and to eat and to be loud and because oh it's like a movie right and they're doing no I'm here you're here uh, there's this amazing company in Chicago that says at the beginning of each of their shows um, we're not going to pretend that you aren't here so you shouldn't pretend that you aren't here mm-hmm. and we wanted we wanted to address that and to find a way of trying to incorporate uh, the audience in it in a way that was approachable and where we set boundaries and where we aren't um, putting people too much on the spot but where we're letting them know that they're included in our journey because the audience I was thinking about this today you know in acting you talk a lot about like your scene partner and your scene partner's your lifeline and your scene partner what do they want and what do you want and how do you make all that work for me mostly in this show Robin's not my scene partner the audience is they're the people I'm feeding off of they're the people I'm counting on I adjust my performance completely based on the energy that they're giving me. Um, And so finding out how to do that, and people have had really different reactions to it. We have an awkward thing in our current uh, theater, which is just, you know, part of the joy of Fringe. But we have an awkward thing where it's like... um, sitting in the house like in the theater the lights feel a lot brighter than when you're on the stage and I need to be able to see people's eyes we would like the house lights to be a little darker than they are but because of reflection and stuff I just can't see anyone's faces um, so we're playing with that and people have different reactions and I would just throw in that Sarah actually sets some of the rules up with the audience at the beginning so she'll you know she begins to sit in the audience and speak to people and she'll actually say something right to them and say it's okay you can laugh and don't worry, we're not going to make you come up and juggle or play the yeah. mime piano or anything. This is it. You're okay. And she expresses that she hates audience interaction as she speaks to them. So, Yeah, that was a great moment, I found, that, that realization that you're probably not having the most comfortable time right now, guys. But it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've been speaking with uh, Robin and Sarah from the show Hospital being presented at the Fringe. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. So we're back here on site at the Edmonton Fringe Festival, and we're going to be speaking with Bronwyn Steinberg, um, who is here presenting her piece, Occupy Me, which is uh, a a theater piece that's hard to describe. You walk into a a room and you don't know whether you're at a show or a yoga class, perhaps, and uh, that's... that's, uh, the fun of, of the piece. So maybe you could just describe to people who haven't seen it what you walk into when you walk into the room. 
Sure. Um, so thanks for having me. Uh, when you come to see Occupy Me, you come to a demonstration yoga class that my character, Sarah Lotus Blossom, is teaching. And so uh, when everybody arrives, I say hello, namaste, and I ask them if they'd like to be a demonstrator in the class or if they'd like to give me some feedback on my teaching. So there is the option for people who are like, oh, this is too crazy. I don't know about audience participation and I don't do yoga. There is the option to sit in a chair. Um, you find out later that there's really no free pass. Everyone still gets involved a little bit. Um, but the idea is, yeah, you've come to this demonstration class. Um, and of course, it's not just a yoga class. It is a play. So um, in the middle of trying to teach the class, Sarah Lotus Blossom is basically trying to figure out what to do with her life, just like many other solo fringe plays that I've seen. It's about it's a journey of self-discovery. Um, but I was really interested in positioning it in this way for a few reasons. Um, one is I'm also a yoga teacher, so I thought it would be fun um, to combine my two passions. Um, but the other is I'm really interested in theater um, that can only be done really live, that in actually um, acknowledges the audience's presence and includes them. Um, and for me, as a yoga teacher as well as an artist, there's no better way to do that than in a, when you actually breathe together and move together. Um, so the audiences come to this demo class, but you also get to... Yeah, hear the story. And so your relationship with yoga is is quite uh, a part of who you are, I assume. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about your history in yoga practice. Sure. Um, so I've probably been practicing yoga for about eight or nine years, and I did my yoga teacher training about three years ago. And I found that um, over the years I had always kind of been aware of yoga a lot of um, movement teachers and acting teachers include some breathing and some yoga exercises sun salutations I probably known what that was a sun salutation since I was maybe 10 but when I was uh, in my mid-20s I discovered just how powerful yoga could be for me because the life in theater um, is crazy you know life in any of the performing arts um, you're following your passion you're living your dream but there's no guarantees um, everything's up and down there's lots of rejection um, there's lots of really high moments too and I found that yoga had the um, ability to really keep me grounded um, in a emotional and mental way and then also it supported my physical practice right I'm keeping your body strong and healthy and flexible and balanced is so important for any kind of performer um, and so I found that it was a really logical partnership. I did the yoga teacher training at first just to deepen my own practice. I wasn't sure if I was going to start teaching or not, but I have since found that it's really the best part-time job I can have. I love teaching classes. I love um, seeing my students breathe better at the end of a class and that like their smile comes a little bit easier. Um, it's a very different but kind of related thing to when you see people walking out of a play that you've just performed you know when they're all talking or laughing or thinking about the ideas and um, I really find that both as a yoga teacher and as an artist it's what we do is we feed people you know we give something that is nourishing we create a human experience um, and uh, what's really fun in Occupy Me is I actually get to do both at the same time you know both kinds of um, different human experiences that I like to play with. Mm -hmm. And the show's in, entitled Occupy Me, and you talk a lot about the Occupy movement, and you relate that to, uh, to the experience of trying to find, 
find oneself through yoga or or through meditation in an ashram um, how do you connect those in your life the, the your experience with the Occupy movement and your experience with yoga um, well it's probably pretty clear that Sarah Lotus Blossom is a lot like Bronwyn Steinberg. Um, she's kind of a clowny version of myself. But yes, the stories that I include in the show are very much um, things that I have thought about and things that I've dealt with or places I've been. Um, and the Occupy movement was something that I was completely just enchanted by. And yet, as an artist and a yoga teacher, I never felt like I could actually participate because the day of like the biggest protest, the biggest rally happened to be the first day of rehearsal. And hey, I've only got one paying show in a certain number of months. I can't miss my first day of rehearsal. Um, I, and so it was this thing that I just loved. And yet I never got to do it. I never got to be a part of it. And um, I thought that that was a really... I don't know, um, an experience that it seemed to resonate for a lot of people I knew. Everybody that I talked to about it seemed like, yes, I, I see what they're getting at. I see that there's a lot of things that could change our generation. We have a responsibility to, to make the world the kind of world we want to live in. But I don't know how to do that because I can't just give up all these other things that I'm already involved with. And I think that's a really interesting kind of struggle. Um, the parallel that I end up drawing is with this ashram, um, and I really did visit an ashram in India for three weeks, and it was really amazing to me to see these um, devotees there, um, spiritual seekers who had given up regular life um, and really just gone to serve a guru, to serve a greater purpose, and um, there was something really beautiful and single-minded about it, and I thought, in fact that almost seems easier to me than being part of the Occupy movement because you could actually just go. And once you're there, you just listen to what they, you know, what they tell you, what you do, and you know that you're doing something for the greater good. It's part of a, a greater thing. Um, but then again, I thought about it more realistically, and no, that was not for me either. Like I couldn't give up most of my things to do something that's here um, and serve this Occupy movement purpose. And I certainly couldn't give up everything to go to India, but why do I have such a strong pull and what can I do instead? Um, so, you know, I'm trying to figure that out still. Maybe telling the story is part of it. Um, and certainly Sarah Lotus Blossom is trying to figure that out in the play. Yeah. One of the most uh, interesting parts I found of the show, of seeing it, was seeing all the different types of bodies and people uh, trying to follow you in the class that you were demonstrating. Um, and it was so beautiful to see that in the room, all these people so engaged in, in trying to follow you in the poses as you're telling your story and going through this yoga class. Um, there are many people that will probably go to your show that might have not ever been to a yoga class before. Uh, what, do you, what do you see them um, understanding about yoga from your class? Oh, that's a great question. Or from your show. Yeah, from my class show. <laughs> from uh, your class show. <laughs> um, that's a really good question. Um, it's interesting. I've had a lot of people comment on that because you can't help when you're in the evaluator chair. You, you have to watch the people on the mats. It's, you, they're they completely are entrancing to look at. You know, somebody described them once as my own little private clown chorus. Um, uh, but also um, the fact that sometimes some people are so committed 
they really want to do the practice too. Um, it's a lot of fun. And it's interesting because sometimes some of the most committed people are the ones who haven't done yoga before and they're really just trying to figure it out. And um, hopefully um, they understand that, of course, most yoga classes aren't quite like this. Um, and I think that what I try to present is, well, the yoga teacher in me tries to present a logical sequence that actually feels good to do. Um, and that was part of it. But I try to present a... Um, a take on yoga that lovingly acknowledges um, just how weird it could be for people who've never tried something like that. Because people are not necessarily instantly comfortable in their own bodies, comfortable doing these weird poses. Um, and, and so I like to kind of acknowledge that and make it a little bit fun to play at. Um, and so... I like to think that maybe it's a gentle introduction um, to what really happens in class. And hopefully I haven't, you know, made it so that they go to class and are laughing the whole time because they're thinking of this weird play they saw. Um, I don't think that happens, though. I think that they go, oh, well, that's kind of neat, you know, I, because hopefully um, they really do have a physical experience of the story by the end. Um, I give enough, I think, cues to the breath, and there's certain things. There's a point where everybody actually does a supported backbend and a twist, and um, physiologically, those should have an effect on your body. If you're in a backbend, your heart will beat a little bit faster, you know? And if you're in a twist, you've done something that has the two sides to it. And um, the, the physical movements actually... Um, underscore the story in a way um, not unlike a dance piece the, the, the poses I've chosen actually should tell their own story in their own language as well and I think whether um, an audience member has any consciousness of that or not, I think they can't really avoid um, the fact that their heart will have beat faster because they've been in a backbend and if they do all in fact follow my cues and breathe with me that will slow their breath down and so you'll have a physical effect whether you are looking for one or not um, and hopefully people are interested in that I've had a lot of people come to me after the show and say well I've never done yoga but I think I might take a class now so that's cool the piece is quite reliant or at least when I saw it reliant on the fact that you are kind of in a yoga studio um, have you ever performed this piece in a in a theater setting or in a different space? I have. Um, I took it to the United Solo Theater Festival in New York. Um, so it's a black box theater that has 45 seats and a very tiny stage. So that was a huge challenge to figure out what do I do. Um, so we had to restage it. I did end up being able to squeeze, I think we could squeeze six audience members on mats onto the stage with me, but um, the configuration was different uh, in terms of now the yogis were on kind of an angle and I was kind of in... I don't know how to describe it for radio. Uh, but the yogis were not opposite the audience. They were on an angle, and I was sort of splitting the difference. Um, and it was, it was a very interesting kind of experiment. I much prefer it in a yoga studio in a site-specific way, um, because it seems, why should I try to make this theater feel like a yoga studio when I could just do it in a yoga studio? Um, but it was not impossible. Um, 45 people also was challenging to get everyone sort of involved in the few parts where I do get everybody to to go on a trip with me to the ashram for example um, so I only was able to take the first two rows of the regular audience so I had the yogis and the first two rows had the more active roles and then I allowed the uh, people further back to be more observer types um, which worked but 
I think it's uh, it's definitely nice to have a venue like I have here at Edmonton Fringe. It's, it's, everybody's really involved and really included, and we make basically just one circle is the way the audience is li- lined up. Nobody's in the second row, um, and I can physically make eye contact and engage directly with every single person in the room. It's a very unique thing to be able to look everybody in your audience in the eyes and, and have a moment with each person individually. It's a... It's a very beautiful thing to watch. Oh, thank you. I love doing it. I know that some people are certainly uncomfortable with it, um, and I see people try to avoid my eyes sometimes. Most of the time, and I've done the show, I think, 45, maybe 50 times now between the five festivals I've taken it to and also one-off shows in yoga studios. Most of the time, by the end of the show, everybody's happy to look at me. Um, but there are those times, there are some people who are like, ah, this is too personal. Too, I don't know what it is. Uh, they're, they're not expecting their entertainment to look back, you know, so. Okay, well, we've been speaking with Bronwyn Steinberg of Occupy Me. Um, thanks so much for, for being here and, uh, and being here at the Edmonton Fringe Festival. Thanks for having me. After a sejour and speaking about a couple different shows that involved movement, we're, we're coming back on track to speak uh, about a dance show. This is a production at the, the Fringe here uh, called There's a Camel on My Back. And we're speaking with Ariel, who's both the choreographer of several of the solos and the solo performer for this. I, I think it's a 75-minute show. Yes. Uh, Ariel, you're a very impressive woman. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Great pleasure being here. Uh, I think uh, it's definitely important to talk a bit about uh, your your background in dance, seeing as so much of, of this work has to do with that and where you are now performing these six solos in this evening-long uh, production. Can we start with, with how you began uh, dancing? Absolutely. So someone signed me up is my recent joke. That would be one of my parents at age seven. And I had the great fortitude of living near the Royal Winnipeg Ballet and so I trained with them from a very young age went all the way through the professional division came out the other end um, studied summers on scholarship at what was then called the BAMP Centre School of Fine Arts which is very near to where I now live and also at Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival in Massachusetts and it was that experience in the summer of 82 that kind of had me spread my wings and virtually all of my classmates in Jacob's Pillow said you must audition for American companies I have aunts you can stay with I have directors I can introduce you to so that was kind of the beginning of me getting out of Winnipeg so to speak and I ended up ironically though working with a company out of Vancouver which is the city where I was born and I ended up touring internationally for three seasons three years with the Anna Wyman Dance Theatre back from 83 I joke often and say, but you weren't born then, uh, from 83 to 86. And then I left that company, freelanced a little bit, and then went into the Judith Marcuse Dance Company when it was a repertory company from 86 to 88, and then had what was called a so-called accident, completely fractured a kneecap, healed it within nine months, and was back on stage solo. And that was 25 years ago. And since then, from that first solo tour that was hugely impactful for me and everyone in the audiences, apparently, uh, I took a 14-year temporary retirement, came back at the age of 40, toured solo for three years, temporarily retired again for nine years, and this is my comeback for a second time. And I've just completed two of my first solo performances in nine years, and it's ecstatic. 
Congratulations. That's absolutely incredible. And it's uh, incredible to hear you speak so openly uh, in your show about this injury that it's obviously was physically and emotionally devastating at the time. Well, actually, no. That's the assumption everyone makes. Everybody thought it was a tragedy. And here's where the story might go kind of deep. Um, I'll just go straight for it. Uh, I've seen visions since I was 10. I hear voices. My father's a psychiatrist. I've met with the Dalai Lama. I've been vetted by Tibetans. I'm perfectly sane. And I literally receive visions and voices. And that is what showed me how to heal my knee. And that's part of the voiceover soundtrack in this particular production is how I completely healed a knee in nine months and was back on stage solo. And so people around me thought it was my swan song. And they were very compassionately, you know, sending flowers and everything. And inside I knew four days after breaking my knee, I woke up in the morning and a crystal clear voice said to me, you'll tour nationally as a solo performer. And my first inner response was, I dare not say this to anyone. They'll think this is preposterous. Because I was in a company, and in those days, I knew of two people touring solo in Canada, and they were both from Quebec, interestingly, elders to me. And Peggy Baker was still working in companies, wasn't on the solo circuit. Margie Gillis, I'm sure, was around, uh, very obviously touring. But, I mean, it was something people just didn't do. You didn't go from a company to tour solo unless you were already a senior dancer, and I barely was. So this was like... I was not to breathe a word to anyone. I was to prove that it was real. And then people would ask me, how did you do it? And I would say literally visions and voices. Internally, I knew how to heal and come back on stage solo. So it's a bit of a, you know, we all have novel stories, but it's got a bit of a twist. So, yeah. You speak in the voiceover in your show um, of the solos coming to you and uh, kind of in a vision, in the visions that you speak of. And uh, there are six solos in this show, but you also mentioned a, a 10 solo show that... that 14. Okay, 14 <laughs> solo show. So is your work uh, mainly solo, solos on yourself? And do they all come to you in these kind of vision-like like, uh, experiences? Yeah, I have probably about 20 24 solos in my repertoire, but keep in mind I'm coming back after a nine-year absence, so a lot of them are dormant. Uh, most of the ones that are dormant are ones that were created on me by other artists. Uh, Serge Benetton, Sandra Niels, um, Judith Marcuse, not created on me, but I inherited it, an exquisite solo. Uh, who else? There are a bunch of people on the list I'm not thinking of right now. Um, and uh, the so how I create programs is, again, it's a completely intuitive experience. I've lived my life completely based on intuition for over 25 years, and I trust it to a T because it's always accurate. And so when I know it's time to dance again or create a new program, I literally tune in, shall we say, and I'm shown an arc of solos. So it's a different juxtaposition of solos every time, and it just so happens in this program it wanted to be these six. And one of them, it closes with Anna Wyman's umbrella solo that she created on me in 1980. Six, I suppose, 85 or 86. Um, so it happens to be five of my solos and one of Anna's in this program. And the 14 solo full evening production that's in rehearsal now, it's three acts, uh, two and a half to three hour running time. And it's all solos by me. However, other than Anna's solo is in the third act, uh, second solo, third act. And a big coup, uh, Dutch master Tour van Schaik has just agreed to create a new solo for me. So that wow. will be in uh, closing the second act, which is called Woman. Yeah, that's the second act. Mm. All these solos kind of feel like a a real timeline or an autobiography. Does the does the uh, 
order of them come to you as well, or do they are they ordered due to uh, when they were created, or, mm. or is there any reason behind the specific order that we see in this show? Yeah, in this show. So what I do every time I create a solo program is, and and I give great gratitude to Arnold Spohr, who was an indirect mentor. I grew up on the RWB in the 1970s, essentially, and back then it was a very much a repertoire company, and the great master choreographers of contemporary of the new wave of contemporary ballet were coming into the force. The Dutch masters, uh, Oscar Arise from South America, John Neumeyer from Germany, and Norbert Wiesack, our Canadian, and various others were the choreographers of the day. So I was really, really moved and obviously deeply influenced by that. So I learned indirectly from Arnold Spohr, uh, not that we ever spoke of this, but I just got it by osmosis, is how to create an arc, an emotional storm. And so that's what I always do when I'm creating a program, is the solos juxtapose to invite the audience into absolute focus to go through a journey that they and I say this somewhat in the voiceover in this particular production through a journey that they probably can't access easily themselves and then I land them respectfully somewhat integrated on the other side so they can find their way into the outer world again and I've literally had experiences where people don't want to leave the theater because they're so moved and they they get it I'm going to have to transition to the outside world again. And I've only, honestly, 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 I've only ever experienced that as an audience member once, with the exception of recently seeing Matt's ex, uh, Sleeping Beauty, uh, touring Les Grands Ballets Canadiens, toured to Calgary, where I made a little drive to in the winter of this last year to see it. I was just like spellbound. The ushers literally had to say to me and my friends, we've cleaned the entire house now, we have to ask you to leave. <laughs> and that used to happen to me as a young girl with a row Winnipeg Ballet when they were doing the mixed, rep- mixed repertory programs. Mm-hmm. And I've experienced that with, um, gee, can I remember his name now? Banjo player, um, him, nifty guy. He does really world music and he had the Mongol- Mongolian throat singers with him. Oh, I can't remember his name right now. Oh, if it comes to me, I'll say it. That guy. Anyway, that brilliant world music banjo player, him. Um, just for the listeners to kind of illustrate what you're, what we're talking about with the mm-hmm. voiceovers happen in between the, yes. the, the solos while you're, while you're making your, your costume and set changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you were talking about the, the audience and caring for the audience, you're also discussing this in the, in the voiceovers. You're, you're teaching the audience how to appreciate dance. You're telling them how to watch it and how to not judge their reaction to it. And, and can you, can you speak a bit to your philosophy on, on how to approach audiences in this gentle way? Well, it's about how to approach self in a gentle way, how to approach other humans and how to approach the planet. I'm also an author. I've written, I think, eight books now. I literally just received the proof of the most recent book while here on tour, and I'm scribing the next big epic. That's the next project after this. This is kind of the midwifing for that, and that's kind of the midwifing for the next global dance thing. So my philosophy is respect, and in my view, all that we're all doing when we finally get around to it is recreating respect. And so it's about treating self and other with dignity and a huge aspect of that is pulling out judgment so one of the ways I'm able to come back after so many years several times now a is a lot of yoga I practiced yoga daily since I was 14 so that's like 38 years now and the other is non-judgment so I intuitively know to go into the studio and have zero judgment of myself and allow my instrument to find itself and then let it flourish and that's how it and I do this thing and it Another note, I just love that you you give physical instructions to the audience. How do I do that? Oh, the the meditation one. Just to to, to relax. Yeah. 
where is your where is your neck where are you crossing your limbs and and yeah that i definitely we were sitting there readjusting to to be appropriate to to receive the work it was a very interesting moment and it happens very early in the yeah. in the programming so as to kind of open us up for the that's rest that's before of the second offer. solo before the comic one which in this production is there to set the audience up for the very very deep transformative one that's about sexual and ritual abuse and domestic violence and a plea for the stoppage of that ridiculous human tendency mm-hmm. and there's something else to, to that to setting up the, the themes of the works before you show them to the audience um, is, that, is that for comprehension's sake or is that for sharing what is it for you? Well you know what's really neat is this is the first time I've ever done voiceovers during costume changes it's the first time I've ever made costume changes visible to the audience and that came out of recommendations of a few people who know the work. My former husband said, Ariel, you've got to give them something. He stage managed for me a number of years ago, like back 9, 11 years ago. And he said, Ariel, you've got to give people something while your costume changes. Because I used to do it backstage and as swift as I could. But it was still, you know, depending on the costume change, one to three minutes. So he said, uh, give them something else. And I got, okay, that's the voiceovers. And then some people who saw the rehearsals in the studio over the last couple of years as I've been reconstructing them said, a lot of people said that ritual you do between solos because in the studio they see it and it's not a costume change it's just me shifting center of gravity focus persona everything that requires me to go from solo to solo they said you've got to show that don't hide that in performance so all that came together and it's the production that you two have seen yeah so did that answer your question or did i leave something okay (laughs) um Talking about the, the the work itself, the solos itself, the content, um, it's very the, the the atmosphere you dramatically change from from piece to piece, um, and then within the piece, I guess I'm curious about when you're when you're speaking of the visions that y- you mentioned that the lighting is decided, the costume is decided, everything comes to you. Mm-hmm. Does it does it come to you the sequence of movements as well, or is it more this atmosphere? It all depends on the piece. So I had a great opportunity last night in performance in the talk back that I did for, you know, offered for five or 10 minutes, just because of the way people ask questions, it opens opportunity for me to share. So I shared with them how Dragonfly, which a lot of people consider my signature piece, and it opens this particular production, and it also opens the 14th solo full evening that happens to be called Ascend. Um, and that one came to me. So here's where this conversation might get a little deep. For 31 years now, I can actually look back and see when this began. I've dropped into what I publicly call spontaneous meditation, but it's actually deep, deep states of trance. And I am in one now, just so you know. It's like I feel like I could lie down and go to sleep, and I'm staying awake so we can concentrate. Anyway, it dropped in again this morning. You can probably tell if you're looking, audio, people listening won't be able to tell, but my eyes look like they're half closed. And I look like, if you knew the way my eyes usually are, they're usually quite open. And though I never do any drugs, have never of any you know social kind, I look like I'm stoned. I'm not. I'm on trance, in trance, on trance, whatever. Anyway, so um, these have been happening for me for 31 years. And Dragonfly, is very unique how it was created because I would uh, in a studio alone I would uh, one of the first two solos simultaneously that were created through me and I call them created through me because I'm not thinking it I'm literally receiving them so that solo I would fall into what some people would call sleep it's actually deep trance in a fetal position on my left side it was I remember every time physically I remember and I would kind of wake up and there would be a position a movement and boom back into trance fetal position on left side and sometime later I would wake up so to speak and there would be the next position and that's how that solo was built deep from what you might call the deep, deep, deep unconscious mind, collective unconscious, whatever. Because for me, that solo represents what every human being is on the cusp of going through, which is cracking the shell. 
and showing their true selves. It's like Michelangelo's statue of David chipping away the rock that isn't me to reveal the absolute true nature of the essence of who's inside. And for me, I sense we're all up for that and we're right on the cusp of that. We could go global here. We'll keep it simple. We'll keep it in a dance. And then, for instance, the Times After, which is the solo about ritual abuse and sexual abuse and domestic violence. Uh, I usually lay my head on the pillow at night and fall asleep immediately. And this particular night years ago, I realized I wasn't sleeping. And this was odd. And I tuned in and I realized I was watching a movie on my inner visual field. And then I realized it was a dance. And then I realized it was me. And I didn't see the movement. That's the piece I didn't see. I saw the emotional progression. I saw how it shifted in space, what space represented. I saw the costume. I saw the symbols painted on it. I heard the music. I knew intuitively it hadn't been written yet, but I heard it. And um, a whole lot of other things I knew. And then when I asked the only composer I knew at the time, would she write the music? And she jumped all over the place and said yes. And as I, there's a little bit more to the story, but I'll edit here. Um, when I totally passed her the description of what I saw in the vision and let it go. And she came back to me with the music, and it told me the movement. So the music, typic- the music typically tells me the movement. I hear the music, and literally I'm shown the solo, as if I'm watching myself on stage, and then I write, as anybody who knows anything about contemporary dance does, I find some way to language that and write it on a written page, and then I go into the studio and I find it in my body. That's the process for me, creating solo work. Uh, a lot of people who work in the self-solo form tend to utilize an outside eye mm-hmm. uh, in their in their production. Does this kind of format like allow you to, to do that? No. Interestingly, when I created the first solo tour in 1989, uh, I knew to not let anyone into the studio because nobody would have any clue what I was doing at that time in the dance world where I was. I literally went out of the dance world with one exception. And finally, I brought one person in, and that's Gisa Cole, who's from the Vancouver dance community. And uh, I knew she could get it. And, um, and that's not an affront against anyone. It's just what I was doing at the time, and it didn't fit. So it didn't fit the norm. It didn't fit what I'd grown up with. So, and Gisa, she pointed to the one or two places where I knew there was a gap. It just affirmed for me where it wasn't quite finished. And I, because everything comes through intuition, it tells me what to do. That's my outside eye, so to speak. Does it change then over time as you, as you interact with it then? In a way it does because, okay, this is where it could get deep again. It's all coded. It's all symbols. And so, for instance, the time at, times after, um, years later, even a couple of weeks ago in the studio, one of the movements was decoded for me. I went, oh my God, that's what this is. It's all coded symbology. It all has deep, 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 deep meaning, but it's not on a cognitive level, level literal until it's decoded, if that makes any sense. Um, some of the solos that are in the full evening production that are somewhat newer than some of the ones I'm performing now, they're decoding to me as I'm in the studio rehearsing. It's fascinating. It's like they reveal themselves to me what they are. I'm literally an instrument for them, and I say that in the voiceover in this production. Like I'm, I, My job is to become as open an instrument as I can to receive what they want to communicate through me. It's not about me at all. My job is to be an instrument and get out of the way and let them communicate from a deeper place. What is your relationship to the uh, solos that you have not choreographed, that that have not come from you? Uh, How do you perform those? How do you connect with those in that maybe not the same way mm. but in a different way well it's really neat because it's like I get to come from them from the outside into them from the outside first and then find my way into them and that's how I actually perform and rehearse as when I rehearse I don't break things down I run through I run through a series of solos I always rehearse going through them I never break them up and so um, 
what I do literally is I climb inside the solo. It's I literally climb inside and I find my way out from the inside out. And um, so ultimately it's no different from another person's work that I'm exploring. In a sense, because the solos I dance didn't really come from me either, if that makes any sense. It's like it was choreographed by somebody else. It happens to seem like me. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's like, yeah, because I'm, I'm receiving it. I'm not creating it. I'm not crafting it. It's not an idea that I'm trying to express. It's literally me getting, okay, here's another solo to be born, and I birth it. I don't know how else to describe it. So it's similar. It's just coming from a different source. Yeah. And one's yeah. within you, and one's... Yeah. 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 And you, your, your performance is so tied to the music. And mm. you, you spoke about uh, working with different composers. Mm-hmm. Um, do you always work with a composer on your, on your pieces? No. Or does sometimes the music, it's music that you enjoyed that influenced your... Uh, it's music that tells me there's a dance here. Pay attention. I'm about to show you what I am. Literally. Like uh, one of the pieces that's in this Edmonton program... I say this in the voiceover too. I was with a friend in Southern England helping him create his recording studio and he woke me in the morning with this music playing in the whole, you know, big speakers in the recording. And I knew it was a dance and I, I just closed my eyes and I started to see it. And that's the way they usually happen for me. Yeah, the music. So much so that recently in Banff, the Banff Center, Jackie Barrett, who's um, formerly with the English National Ballet, I asked her would she rehearse me in Anna's umbrella solo. It was the first time I'd been rehearsed by anybody in like 28 years or something. It was like quite fascinating experience. It was like, oh my God, how do I do this? How do I let somebody rehearse me? Anyway, it was quite fun. And um, she, her approach was to go through it without the music. And I was lost. I had no idea where I was. Not at all. Because the music tells me where I am. And that's partly how I can be on stage alone and for so long is I surrender into the movement, but the music tells me what it is. Like, I'm not alone on stage because I'm there with the music. I don't know how else to describe it. And the music tells me where to be. If I ever get lost, which is very rare, um, I uh, tune into the music. Like, I just let it remind me where I'm to be. It's like I completely surrender into the music. Do you ever watch your solos on video or from the outside or do you only ever experience them from the inside from the inside i reconstruct them when i you know let go dance for years and years and years by watching performance videos and i find that very difficult because for my brain most all our brains right it's flipped i find that very challenging because i'm i go from the inside out i don't go from the outside mind you i it's like i can see myself on stage performing them in my inner visual field i can see that but that's different than watching a video yeah would you be able to share with us a, a bit of the, the music from the piece that you had composed for the solo? Absolutely. And I'd just like to say it's composed by an amazing uh, woman named A.D. Perry, Anita Perry. And it's performed by Anita on piano and Tony Stanek on violin years ago. <laughs> like 26 years ago or something like that. Yeah, That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Ariel. Mm. We've been speaking uh, with you about uh, There's a Camel on My Back, your show at the Edmonton Fringe. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to mention about the show or about your your future plans? Mm, maybe the future plans. Just the big book being scribed this autumn is the primer for the next big dance production, uh, which is probably going to be produced and premiered next summer, summer of 2015, I suppose that is. And uh, yeah, we're good to go. And you do have a website. For, I do. Yeah. It's uh, a lot of vowels. <laughs> do you want to just give it to our, our listeners? And- sure. It's um, Ariel Ally, so that's A R I O L E 
A-L-E-I dot com. And then to get to the dance page, it's forward slash U, the letter U, the letter R, the word light, you are light, forward slash dance, and that'll get you there. Perfect. But it's got the courses and the books and things about the Global Project and everything on that site. So, Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you kindly. Up next, we're going to be speaking again about a dance show. This one's called Grey Matters, and that's with the S in brackets on the end of matters. Uh, and this is a production by Breath in Movement, which is spelled M V. 
MT. So we have lots of different punctuation and stuff happening. And uh, I'm speaking with uh, Melissa Booz from uh, from the company here. And you are the choreographer of the show, are you not? I am, yes. And the director of the company. Okay, perfect. So let's talk about the company. How long have you been a company? Um, for a short two years, actually. Okay. Yeah, so this is our second production. And um, my second kind of wave of cast members kind of thing. Last year we had 13 of us and this year we had seven in London and now um, in Edmonton we're at six. Okay, cool. Yeah, so we had to come all the way out to Edmonton to meet a company from London, Ontario. (laughs) This is true. I would love to have met you in Montreal. Um, I would love to go to that fringe um, and dance in Montreal and take class and all that. We we all would. Yeah, well, come check it out someday. (laughs) Um, But for now, you're in Edmonton, and you're rocking the fringe here. You've got a BYOV, which yes. means you've been very self-directed in finding your space and your technicians and, and, and doing your thing. Yes and no. The BYOV that we're in at La Cité Francophone is a huge, huge hotspot for the fringe. They have their own box office there, even, like their own white tent. And there's three separate venues over there, I think each with about eight shows. So it's really popular uh, over there for sure it's worth the trip actually I know people that'll go out and spend the whole day just to see shows that are in the French Quarter mm-hmm. which is nice so yeah, we didn't have to do walk from the main site I would say so or yeah. less even yeah and a quick bus ride and um, so all that brunt work we didn't necessarily need to do it was done for us and then we had a separate kind of application fee to go through uh, the manager there okay mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, Grey Matters and uh, specifically the the title and what that inspires uh, thematically in the work. Uh, Yeah, it's definitely a bunch of different concepts. So overall, our show is about moving from a really chaotic space and how we find humans often live through life and that kind of state of chaos and they never necessarily like settle in the gray area it's always I need to do this or this uh, or black or white or those tensions of whatever um, you're processing in your life those indecisions and we often are rushed um, to find an answer but that in the end sometimes it's better to just take care and sit in the gray or that being inconclusive is okay so that the gray and um, my dad has a brain injury another cast member has a brain injury in her family as well uh, so we always think back to memory loss as well as a theme in our show. And Grey Matters of the Brain is another process there. And in the end, that yeah, it is important to take care of ourselves. And um, so not just Grey Matters, but that the Grey does actually matter for mm. each one of us. Okay, hence mm-hmm. the brackets around that. Hence S the brackets, there. exactly. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I know punctually, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's been a lot typing and such for <laughs> promo, but um, it, it's important to us to have it in the mm-hmm. brackets. Mm-hmm. And uh, physically, you can represent this kind of duplicity in, in your chaos and your in your structure. You have moments where there's a lot of kind of more state-based uh, sections where people are kind of, um, their skin is crawling or there's a lot of, like, um, tension in, mm-hmm. in the muscularity, in the body, and there's a lot of, of, of things happening at once. All six cast members are kind of in their own in their own zone. And then you'll have these moments of, like, uh, choreographed sequences right. where you get the, your your, uh, your jumps and kicks. Yes, and, <laughs> yes. And body rolls and stuff. Yeah, it's definitely important to us that everyone gets the opportunity to be themselves on stage. Like, my company like breath and movement is basically like we want to let it be known that anyone can dance that we all dance in some way we all move in ways and it's accessible to everyone and and um in the show we go from a lot of improv or working out the 
the concepts to choreograph sections just showing that we are relatable and we and we go through things um, in our own way but that we all do experience things so it's important that it is chunks of choreography as well for me because then we're at least showing I don't necessarily understand what you're going through on your own but I'm going through something as well and like we can do it we can both have that experience it'll be different but that same theme that same concept people do understand Mm -hmm. and then it's related like to say to the audience too like I know that you feel this way at times as well kind Mm -hmm. of thing if that makes sense yeah speaking of all that (laughs) because uh, I wouldn't say there are theatrics involved but there's definitely like a lot of emoting coming Mm -hmm. out of the performers they're definitely performing not just uh, not just physical things but also kind of what they're going through this show um, we originally had a cast of five and um, two of my good friends couldn't um, couldn't unfortunately commit to it so we lost a couple in the cast and we ended up running auditions and the dance part of auditions was lovely but what was more important to me was the one-on-one interviews and each and every one of us at this time just like had something to really put right into this show to really channel right into this show and so it's very personal for each one of us and to live out our experiences on stage it's really raw because it is who we really are it's i mean we put a character on i guess but in the end we're really just showing like our true selves there is a lot of variety in your cast there different different people different places in their lives uh that obviously come from from different places to start off with yeah is that uh is that due to this casting or is that something that you've all attracted to this way of working like meaning is it intentional yeah it wasn't intentional it was definitely through the interview process who fit the show you know and and who could who really needed this show and who fit the mold and it worked out we're an amazing blend we (laughs) support and rely on each other every day for so many different things the ups the downs the roller coaster of this fringe has been crazy already so far and we're not even halfway there uh, but yeah, it's definitely amazing to have a mother figure. It's amazing to have babies. We call we call our eighteen year olds our babies because they're very you know mature in their minds for so- certain things, but need guidance at other times. And as do I. And uh, it's been a really really good mix of of people, super supportive and so much love for one another. Like I can go to them for anything, and they know the same about me. And that comes through. I hope through the show. Um, because of all the improv, certain things happen. Every every show is different, and <laughs> like we know that we can trust each other no matter what. So that's really special to me. I'm curious about your choice in uh, in props. We have some mm. mason jars, we have some lamps, uh, and and eggs. Eggs yes. are they're, they're even in the promotional material. These egg yes. shells. Um, what what is important about these images to you? These images originally we. Really um, wanted to bring off more of like a safe space, uh, like a living room kind of space where we come. In. The show was going in a different direction then, but they kind of come about organically. Die Hard is our is actually a character for us. He is a, the, our stool, and he was with us last year in our first production, and will probably be in the next one. And each of them just they represent not so much something specific, but um, how do I say it? like like the lamp is 
her tinkering with the lamp and her not being able to calm down it's, it's not necessarily about the lamp but it's about the things that we the excuses that we use in our life to kind of get through every day you know like I'll waste time making lists and um, rereading my lists before actually checking things off of them or I'll worry about bills before I just worry like just pay just pay the one that's due um, but they're not necessarily like about that paper but it's about like how we um, ignore situations that we maybe could be dealing with and that that we what's the word procrastinate yes that's my thing for sure um, but just how we kind of subside how we avoid our active yeah. avoidances I guess okay. sorry yeah like how we're how we avoid you know maybe what we could accept and grow from instead we block that out and then we'll tinker, tinker with this lamp it's not necessarily about tinkering with the lamp it's not about the mason jars and it's not about the water but it's about the avoidance I guess yeah uh, you have a wicked soundtrack in your yeah, show. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I take so much pride in the music. I do the music. I love, love, love making scores for shows. It's And when I get that feedback, <laughs> it makes me really happy, so thank you. How do you select your music? Uh, I love... Um, I, I've, I've always loved music and I love fresh music. I love new sounds in my ears all the time. And I also love music that I've loved forever. And I constantly am searching for more. Um, like... The CBC Radio 2, Laurie Brown, The Signal, I listen to often. She's on every night at 10 o'clock. And I get a lot of Canadian um, artists from there, a lot of contemporary music from there. Um, my co-directors are really fond of lyrics. Lyrics are very, very important to them. So that has been a collaboration. If I present them with something and maybe it's not necessarily right lyrically, they, they say, you know, I don't know about this. But whereas I'm more about the the presence of the beat and the, and the music. And yes, I know the lyrics are there and, and usually they do fit, but I'm not obsessed with them. Um, it's more how, about how it makes me feel. And yeah, I love making soundtracks. It's a lot of fun. There's actually a track uh, in the show uh, that uses the poetry of Ian Ferrier. Yes, Disappear. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's actually uh, a poem that's in our show. No way. That Ian <laughs> performs live on stage. Pardon me? Yeah. With you, he performs He live? does, yeah. I'm really excited <laughs> to hear this. That's so cool. Oh, my God. That scene is so special. That's the, the memory loss scene for us. That scene is um, really heartbreaking for us to perform, actually. But uh, that's so interesting. Wow. Yeah, Jody found that song for me. Um, Jody Hall, my co-director. And she's the one that is obsessed with lyrics. The lyrics have to work for her. They have to mm. make sense. And... She found that song. She sent me. She sent me the clip, and I love it. It's it's a perfect character to that scene. It's like with us on stage. It's you know. It's it's. I don't know. I just find him, like his voice like right there is is guiding us through that whole scene, and that's been a really special one. Especially because I didn't choose that song, and I'm usually really reserved for that. I usually love to keep music for myself, whereas that's been that was suggested, and and it totally worked, and we're loving it. Cool. So there you go. That's pretty neat. It was pretty pretty shocking for me. Yeah, the audience. I, I like, can't I imagine. That's yeah. Ian. Oh my god, it is Ian. <laughs> okay, weird. What are the chances that two two right. performances would involve the same uh, poet? So is he in Montreal? Like I... no, he's in he's in Edmonton with us. He's doing the show oh with us. We're goodness. doing the tour together. Yeah, no, I would have met him the first day, but that is so, did, what did he say? Oh my gosh, I hope he can come and see it. Yeah, he's planning on it. Oh my goodness, cool. I, I can't wait to share that with my cast. I'm <laughs> so excited. Oh my goodness. <laughs> 
Well, there you go. Um, great. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. We've been speaking with Melissa Booz from uh, Grey Matters, the company Breath and Movement. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So continuing our coverage of the Edmonton Fringe Festival, we're going to move on to a show that is more in the realm of uh, physical theatre and clowning and uh, and whatnot. It's called The Awkward Art of Flying, and it's a double-hander. I have both performers here with me, Claire Patton and Lucia Rich. And uh, your, your theatre company is called Quake Theatre, the two of you together. But you've been working together for almost seven years now in different capacities in different situations uh, and you were just saying that, that, that you've, you've had similar training can we talk about where your, your passions for physical theatre started and, and that transition yeah um, I have a background in dance um, as well as theatre and even as a young person growing up I was always really interested in merging the two worlds so the movement um and physicality of dance with the character and storyline of theater. And I was never quite satisfied with either by itself. I always wanted to combine them. And that's basically what led me to the Lecoq School to study physical theater, um, and including masks and clown and comedia dell'arte and uh, various forms. Uh, and yeah, just basically best of both worlds. Uh, for me... I came from a more traditional theater background and in my teens and early 20s. And I figured as a performer, I don't have a dance background, but as a performer, I really wanted to explore the body and what, what that would bring to my performance. Uh, so I went and studied physical theater in Italy uh, with a man named Giovanni Fusetti for two years. And this was Lecoq training as well. And uh, I just thought I would study that and then go back to traditional theater. However, once I got there, I found these styles of theater and these ways of creating theater that I found to be so authentic and urgent. And I saw how engaged the audience was with the performances. And so I just could never go back. So, so not a traditional gal anymore. <laughs> so there's a lot of different kind of things happening in your training. Um, for this, this show in particular, it looks like there's pantomime, looks like there's flying objects. I'm not quite sure what that means. But what, what tools in your toolbox are you using for, for the awkward out of flying? Uh, yes, we do do pantomime. Um, a lot of stylistically, that's what we're using, and a little bit of absurd kind of eccentric characters, as well as some clown. We play multiple characters throughout. Sometimes we actually play objects. So um, as far as the the creation, we are touching in on those styles in particular. Um, we don't wear the red noses, but there's a definite... Um, we've definitely implemented some of the tools of creating a clown show uh, for two characters in particular in the piece. And we also, 